Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing brought to you by Livewire Markets. My name is Chris Conway. Today I'm joined by Chow Ma. Chow has had an extensive career in funds management, including stops in New York, working for Jericho Capital, and more recently, Cooper Investors in Melbourne. Earlier this year, Chow joined Munro Partners, where it was recently announced that she would be leading the Munro Partners Global Growth Small and Mid-Cap Fund. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, click the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified every time we post an episode. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment lines from Australia and abroad. It's great to be here with you, Chow. Thanks for joining us on The Rules of Investing. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. First off, I'd just love to learn a little bit more about you and your background. You've worked in markets for 17 years now. How has your investment philosophy developed over that time? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, investment philosophy is a bit of a funny word because when you first joined the industry, well, when I first joined the industry 17 years ago, I didn't have a philosophy. Um, I just kept my head down and tried to do as good of a work as possible. And I think over time, I mean, this is, I mean, there are many, many ways of making money in the stock market. I think this is a little bit like finding a partner in life. Over time, you have to first understand who you are, um, and then you find a set of philosophies and rules that, that work for you, that basically make you the best in the particular opportunity set that you are best suited to tackle. Um, so when I first started off, um, actually, I probably started off as a value investor. Um, I was trained in the very classic blue-blooded way of investing. I, I went to um, the undergraduate commerce program at University of Virginia, um, and then I went to Harvard Business School. Some of my professors were actually Nobel laureates, so I was very, very fortunate to get a very classic finance uh, background. I read every single book I could get my hands on, and most of them, frankly, are on value investing. Um, so I came into the business thinking I wanted to be a value investor. Um, and I wanted to look at banks and I like, you know, these really, you know, stable companies. I couldn't get a job in any of the funds that look at banks or staples companies. I got a job with um, a really big tech hedge fund. Uh, so I say, all right, I'm going to try to figure out how to make money in tech stocks. And um, my first job at hedge fund is a large hedge fund called KOTU. And um, they did not believe in um, cheap stocks, actually, for a very simple reason that cheap stocks in tech um, actually means declining earnings. So your 10 times earnings today actually translate into 12 times earnings next year, 15 times earnings the year after, and your stock actually become more and more expensive. So I had a real eye-opening at just understanding big changes, structural changes, and understanding the differences between short-term and long-term earnings and start really thinking about valuing the business that way. Um, so now at, at Monroe, we are growth managers and we think about really sustainable, doable earnings growth. And it's a little bit like combining the two. We, we think about long-term compounded earnings growth and we think about what is the right multiple for that level of earnings growth. Um, so, so that's really where I'm at now. Chia, just a very quick follow-up question there. What do you prefer, value or growth? <laughs> It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. The best things in the world is to find a great growth company, but trading at, you know, value stock multiples, which when you look around at the market today, you can actually find a lot of them. So I would say a growth stock on sale is just the best thing in the world. Very diplomatic answer. Thank you. 
Um, I just want to back up there. You talked about the beginning of your career or the beginning of your investment philosophy developing. I know you spent some time at Lehman Brothers. It would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this because you were there between 06 and 08. We all know what happened with the GFC. What was it like being in the eye of the storm working at Lehman Brothers when the world was seemingly crashing down around you? It was surprisingly calm. Um, And looking back, there were a lot of lessons to that. We were employees of Lehman Brothers. We were led by one of the largest um, Wall Street legends who was the, you know, Richard Fold was the best performing Wall Street CEO of all times. So there was an incredible amount of actual confidence that this would get resolved. We were sometimes laughing at the Bear Stearns guys um, and, and, and frankly really never thought that um, the Lehman fate will be sealed um, just a short few months afterwards. I think probably the lesson looking back, one is just humility to, to always remember that, you know, sort of anything could happen. So, so have that real sense of being humble, being open. I think the second one is really just to step back and look at where the world is going. Um, clearly, the world was going at a direction that was going to be very adversarial to an entity like Lehman Brothers. But we were so closely watching the numbers, the quarterlies, the every single news release, we actually just didn't really step back. So I could I could tell you as a fact that months before, so I left Lehman Brothers two months before it declared bankruptcy. There was not a single person walking around the floor at Lehman and saying, hey, guys, what if we declare chapter 11 or chapter 7 and people would laugh him off the floor? You talked there about uh, taking lessons. Uh, you worked in Melbourne here with Peter Cooper from Cooper Investors, another great Australian investor. What were some of the lessons that he shared with you that may have stayed with you to today? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest thing I learned from, from Peter is how to factor a very almost impossible to quantify factor called culture into the investment decision. And the funny thing is once I factor that into the investment decision, I factor that in every decision I make in life, uh, which is even a broader takeaway. Um, so culture is a very funny thing. Usually when a Wall Street analyst initiate coverage on a new stock, he will publish between 100 to 200 pages of very lengthy initiation report. And I did an experiment. You go search the word culture and you will return zero result. Um, But the interesting thing is culture is actually everything. Culture is the ultimate forward-looking indicator of where this company is going. It doesn't matter the type of past glory it was able to achieve. If you have the wrong culture, you just have no space, no pace for you in in the future. Um, So Peter Cooper was very, very big on drilling that into us. And and we get quite nuanced about the culture. Culture is is not a one-size-fit-all phenomenon. Different type of companies at different cycle of their their life actually need a different culture. So a startup needs a much more flexible, innovative culture. A more mature businesses need a, a more stable, more hierarchical culture. So there's really no big or bad culture, but being... You know, being an investor and actually factoring culture into that um, conversation when you evaluate an investment, that's incredible. I still remember an example um, of I was walking around probably in Beijing at that time, and there was a, um, a fintech startup. 
and we walked around, and, and that's really where risk management and regulatory risks were were really just around the horizon. And management basically assured us that this is a company with, um, you know, just the perfect, most thoughtful risk management measures. And I remember walking around the company, and I could not find anyone over the age of 30. Um, and, and, and this is not to be an ages, but it just to think that how, how do you really manage risk when you don't have a single person that's, that's seen a few of these cycles and knowing that things could go quite bad um, or have the maturity to interact with the regulators who, who tend to be in the 50s and 60s. It was just a very obvious disconnect. And, and the second thing is just the disorganized nature of their office. I remember just things everywhere and no one knows where anything is and people just walk around with their laptops and you say, well, I don't know. If I were a regulator and I walk in here, I'm not going to have full confidence that you keep all the records and files. Um, so, so we actually end up making a decision not to invest in that company because the, the, the real doubt of observing the culture of the business actually come in um, and, and translate into a real risk factor. So, so you know, at, at the table at Cooper Investors, we really discuss that a lot. Um, and, and, and culture is very real as a risk and opportunity as, as real as, you know, a company's financials. Chow, I've just got to ask a follow-up question there, and just, just very quickly. How do you quantify that these days? And then what percentage of the decision is it when you're looking at a stock? Is it, you know, if you had to put a number on it, is it 15, 25? How, how do you quantify um, when is the wrong culture is 100% of the decision. Right. Um, so you are right. You can't quantify a culture. But this is one of the really unique things that only a human being can do. And we can talk about AI. And this is one of the areas that I am personally super excited about. But as a human being, it's, it's pretty incredible. Like we are the unique judge of culture, and we are actually incredibly good at it. Um, so if you showed up, you go eat at the employee um, cafeterias, you walk the floor, you have a little bit of a coffee chat at the executive lounge, you get to see how the chairman is treating his secretary. I mean, all these little indications, if we just take our heads out of the laptops and just look around and let your sensors just vibrate a bit, um, you actually have a pretty good pickup. So when we get the wrong vibe, we get out. Um, and, and, you know, today on Monroe, we look, we look at a lot of growth stocks. When you think about sustainable earnings growth, that takes a very sustainable set of actions. Um, and then when you have a wrong feel of the place and feeling like this is not the right place for employees to come to work, you're going to lose your um, most innovative talent, then you're not going to achieve the objective of that growth stock. So it's one of the six factors that we have. Um, when we evaluate stocks, so you can roughly say, you know, that's probably 15% um, of the character. But, you know, when we feel like it's the wrong culture, wrong alignment, wrong management team, we get out of the stock. Uh, just one last question on your background before we move on. Uh, in your mind, is there one stock or investment that you think really put you on the map? I'm not really sure if I'm on, on the map. <laughs> um, I, I like to think that I'm still flying under the radar and I really like it that way. But I, I think there's probably certain stocks and that, that really get, you know, get me feel like I was doing the best work. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they tend to be sort of the, the very um, little discovered, very thin coverage stocks. And, 
you know, just, you know, back to that comment, you have to know who you are. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just really exciting to discover something that, that no one is looking at and, and say, wow, the world's really changed. Is actually going into this particular company's direction. And that's really exciting. Um, so a few examples is I discovered this little stock that, that just published recipes in Japan. And, uh, you know, small insight is, wow, actually the Japanese housewives are really becoming the main purchaser and the one that's controlling the household budgets. So they're actually the most valuable audience that you want to go market to. Or um, I found a sort of a back-end assembly stock based out in Taiwan and all they do is the back-end engineering testing. It was a pretty mundane business, but when you start thinking all the large companies now want to have their own chip, um, this is what we call custom silicon, and they don't have the in-house engineering team that's like usually it takes about 500 people just to test the chip, you start to understand the world's actually going their way. Um, so a lot of these businesses have been around for a long time. No one ever looked at them. They tend to be in the smaller side. Um, but when you realize it was a trend you were observing and that really mesh with what they're doing, is really exciting. Chell, let's talk about the current market environment. So Munro has a growth focus, but after a decade of dominance, growth as a factor has done it tough in recent years amid surging interest rates and heightened volatility. What has surprised you the most over that period, over the last two years, and what have you learned that can help you grow as an investor moving forward? I think what surprised me the most, and we actually said that in Monroe, we said the S&P is not the economy. And what really surprised me was the actual earnings growth um, being achieved by some of these winning companies, how far that demarcate from not just the U.S. GDP, global GDP, but how far that demarcate from even their own industry. So you really start to see, I think, real diversion between a winner and a loser of the same industry. And, and this is really where the math really breaks down um, because when you start thinking, okay, if the GDP is X percent, inflation is X percent, your industry growth is roughly 5%, then how can you grow 20%? But that's exactly um, a lot of what, what, what these companies do. So that's the surprise element number one. The second surprise element is they do it with the size that they are. Um, so in NVIDIA is the perfect example. I mean, how many um, companies currently having a trillion dollar uh, market cap attached to it could actually beat consensus earnings by 200% this year? And, and we have, what, 50 Wall Street analysts looking at NVIDIA, um, talking about it and speaking to management on a daily basis, yet the market could still be so wrong and underestimating its earnings power. Um, so that's probably the, the real surprise is how far the winners could go at growing their profits. Chow, that's a bit of a look back. Let's look forward. What's your outlook on growth and particularly the small and mid-cap space that you're looking at over the next, let's call it 12 to 24 months? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always really hard to give a market outlook. Um, so the smaller end of the market had really underperformed. And, and you you can look at the you know, the measures of Russell 2000 compared to the S&P. And, you know, Russell has underperformed both year to date over the past three years. Um, it is really cheap relative to S&P, which is a measure for much larger companies. Um, it's also a lot cheaper compared to its own historical averages. So all these indicators would say there should be a mean reversion of, of you know, mid to small caps doing better. But that's actually not why we started the Smith Fund at Monroe. 
We started it because we realized there was another half to the S-curve um, that, you know, as a larger cap fund just cannot address. And that side of the curve is looking really interesting. Um, so just as an anecdote, um, when we started the Smith Fund, um, usually as a fund uh, manager with an investment team of, you know, call it 10 to 15 people, when you start a new fund, you go around and a little bit like, you know, hat in hand as a PM and say, hey, can, can you please work on this for me? Can you work on that for me? And most people consider you a bit of a nuisance because you're a small fund. <laughs> you don't generate P&L. Why are you bothering me with this? When we started the small mid-cap fund in Monroe, I just said, look, um, whoever that wants to come pitch an idea on a Friday, I'll buy you a burrito. And I was expecting half the people to show up. Each one give me an idea. And that's a really great outcome to be. Everybody showed up. Actually, some of the non-investment team members showed up, which is a, a, it's a real surprise. Everybody had a burrito and everybody pitched about two stocks. And that's really when I realized that the passion for a lot of these small mid-cap companies really has been with the team all along. Um, these are not the companies that they just, you know, look at a Friday lunch and say, okay, on Wednesday, I'm going to take two hours out of my day and look at the stock. No, no, no. These are the companies they have put in the drawer for a long time, looking at it, getting excited by it, but also know that because of the smaller size of the company, it just doesn't fit our main fund mandate. So people were so excited to, to come pitch this stock. And most of these stocks that we end up picking for the Smith Fund, they were exactly in the same areas of interest um, that we call a Monroe, which is really just a, a broader industry or broader trend that we look at. But smaller market cap earlier in the life stage. Um, so we really sort of put together, you know, I call these passion projects for the whole team. And that's really why we started the Smith Fund, because we start seeing you know, really exciting smaller companies in our wheelhouse, as in we understood them for a very long time, we tracked them for a very long time. And because of the phenomenon of this valuation gap, right now they're also on sale. Um, so, you know, back to that, that original comment, the best thing in the world as an investor is a really quality growth company that's on sale. And that's really what we are seeing of, of the collection of the 20 odd stocks that we put together. Chow, take me inside the Munro war room. Uh, what are the major risks to the outlook that you just laid out? And what are the one or two things that you guys are arguing about, debating about, concerned about as you carry this forward? Yeah. So the risk is that we are wrong. Um, and as an investor, that's, that's always the number one risk. Um, you know, we can blame macro, we can blame geopolitics, but ultimately when we look at, when I look at the stocks I lose money on is because I was wrong at doing the company research and doing the company analysis. So, you know, there was a research that is widely quoted on Monroe and we really remind ourselves every single day. And this is a, a, what we call the Bessenbinder research um, made by Professor Bessenbinder at I think Arizona State University and had a really simple conclusion um, that basically says, you know, out of the 100 years of the U.S. stock history, roughly 35 trillion U.S. dollars of stock market wealth created, um, 26,000 cumulative public companies, out of which only about 1,000 of them actually make money for the investors at all. Um, and out of the, the 1,000, the top 50 accounted for half of all the wealth that's being created. So, you know, that's great um, to think about the excitement of growth investors because all of that 1,000 companies, and especially the top 50, at some point, actually over decades of their life, 
these are growth companies. That's how they end up being such, you know, taking such a lion share of, of the profit um, because they grow year in and year out for 20, 30 years. But then to your point, what is the risk? Well, the risk is knowing more likely than not, you are one of the 25,000 companies and not the 1,000 companies. So that is incredibly humbling for a stock picker um, to know that roughly one in 20 um, of the stock you actually pitch it to yourself, let alone your team, is probably not going to be value add. So what do we do with that? Uh, that's why we have a stop loss. Um, that So roughly 20% either fall from peak or 20% from cost. That basically triggered a firm-wide review of this particular stock. Um, and then, you know, back to the culture of a company. I mean, risk management is not a mechanism at Monroe. It's a culture at Monroe. Um, so one of the records that the Monroe team has really put together is throughout the 15 years of managing money, they have never lost more than 100 bibs of performance on one stock. And that is one point of performance. I personally have seen a lot of fund managers in my life, and I have never seen a fund manager not losing 100 bibs on one stock. Because if you think about a relatively concentrated portfolio, very common you have four to five percent as a precision size. And for a growth stock to lose 20% of that, that is one day. <laughs> one bad yeah. earnings print, you lose 100 bips. So it is so hard to never lose 100 bips. And this is a badge of honor for the entire Monroe team. Like we work really hard to make sure that chart in our investor presentation stays that way. So when a stock triggered, which means it's down 20%, the entire team gets involved. Ego gets taken out of the place. You know, in, in some ways, the accountability really gets shared by the entire team. Because if we all go, we all review the stock with an independent pair of eyes, and then we all vote at the trigger discussion meeting, which we have twice a week, then all of a sudden, if we are wrong, then we all share the burden. But the stock champion at that point are also open enough because he or she also knows we really need to keep that, that chart, that less than 100 bips. Um, intact on the investor presentation. So when you put the two together, I think the big part of, of, of this is to make sure when you are in that 25,000 out of 26,000 stocks, risk management out of it to make sure you get out of it quick um, so that you let your winners um, run and you let your winners really compound over the long run. Joe, I bet those meetings get pretty ruthless. You know what? That is precisely why the, the culture comes into place. The, the meetings were not ruthless because the meetings are really helpful. So as an as a, as a analyst or as a PM, as a stock champion is what we would call us, um, let's say one of the stocks you, you, you are in charge of, you're taking care of, is down 20%. Well, first of all, it's only down 20%, it's not down 90%. When it's down 90%, you are curling up in a fetal position in the corner, just praying no one come talk to you about it. When it's down 20%, you're actually still open-minded and flexible enough to have a conversation. And right. we all have triggers all the time. I mean, we are growth managers. So you have your peers who also have triggers, who, who, who sort of really um, have this open discussion. So set a great example for you. And you haven't lost that much money on the stock. So you are still coming to the table. Um, so during 2021, um, I wasn't physically at Monroe yet, but I was having, you know, lots of conversations with Nick, our CIO. So I knew of the journey the team was going. It was really rough, but Monroe ended up getting out of the stock down 20%. 
And a lot of the stocks fell another 70% afterwards. And so, you know, for, from an from a, a individual perspective, it's actually much better that your team help you get out of those stocks, then, you know, you, you end up in the fetal position in the corner. So I actually don't think, no, our trigger discussions are reasonably calm and not that stressful. Chao, you've already talked a little bit about the fact that uh, global small and mids are lagging their large cap counterparts. What do you think will be the catalyst for the re- for the rewriting for the catch up? I know you know. I know that's not the reason why yep. you've opened the fund, but what do you think the catalyst will be for that that catch up to take place? You know, I think the catalyst is the same as every stock, large or small cap. I think you know, and, and this is our really fundamental core belief: the stock prices follow earnings. Mm-hmm. So, what would help um, the performance of any stock as a group or individually is you just prove to your investors you can actually grow your earnings sustainably. And if you keep doing that, I think eventually you get your fair multiple. So I want to talk a couple of stocks through certain lenses. So the current environment where interest rates have gone up, debt is more expensive. How important is it that a small and mid-cap company can fund its own growth? And can you talk to a stock in the portfolio that fits the bill? Yeah, um, I think that's everything. Um, and then actually, I think, you know, this is in some ways for the small and mid-cap companies that can fund their own growth is a key competitive advantage because your competition dies out um, and your irrationally funded private market competitors shut doors. Um, so it actually become much more rational of an of, of a environment for a small and mid-cap company that has a great balance sheet, that has a net cash position, and that's, you know, very free cash flow generative on its own. Um, so across the 20 stocks that uh, that we, we end up picking for the Smith portfolio, for example, um, as a whole is a net cash portfolio. So in, in some ways, interest rate going up. Yes, we, we can talk about the growth stock multiples, but interest rate going up actually generate more interest income as a group for these companies. Um, so one of the example, and many of the Australian investors have p- walked past their store, is JD Sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a British sportswear retailer, and uh, it really start opening doors everywhere else um, in the world outside of the UK. Um, and the, Australia is actually one of their highest performing markets. Um, I actually recently went to um, the JD Sports store on Pitt Street in Sydney. I walked around the store with the group CEO who just happened to be in town looking at, at their, their store. So that was a, a really awesome experience for me personally. So on average, when they open a new JD Sports store, they break even within a couple months, and within two years, they end up recouping their entire investment. And after that, it's usually in Australia close to double-digit uh, margin going forward. Um, so this is group, you know, basically every store they open, they become profitable very, very quickly, um, and the snowballs just keep on rolling. Um, it is still a very small company, sort of, you know, called less than $10 billion U.S. dollars of market cap, but it's actually the number one partner for Nike globally. There is no, no re- not a single retailer in the world that takes more Nike or sells more Nike shoes and apparel outside of Nike itself. Um, so as a preferential partner, um, if you go into a JD sports store, you're going to see wall-to-wall Air Jordans. Um, if you go to one of the much smaller retailers, um, you're going to be very lucky to even have one or two pair of Air Jordans because they have just the best inventory um, from Nike, from Adidas. The, the sportswear brands are actually fighting for the shelf space um, within JD. And then just a little elemental on culture. 
when we were walking around the stores and I had my eyes on a few pair of um, small Air Jordans for my kids and all the store staff were really busy. Um, guess what the CEO of the group did? He went to the back and he picked out the right size and the right shoes and come out and, and give it to me. So I just think, you know, small gestures like that when a group CEO will come to a shop and actually help serve customers, it just, it, it just speaks volumes of the culture of the place. And yeah, we, we really love that visit. Chow, just very quickly, are you a sneakerhead yourself? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, I think we're all either outright or hidden sneakerheads at Munro. We, we love our sneakers. Yeah, I am too, and I love JD Sports, so that's great insights. Thanks for sharing. Um, earnings durability, it's another factor that I know it's important that you, you look at. Um, what exactly does that look like for the stocks in the portfolio? And again, is there a stock that best exemplifies that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so earnings durability is, is actually quite simple. So we think about there are two factors, mathematically speaking, factor into the earnings durability. One is you have to have revenue growth. You cannot manufacture earnings growth just out of cutting cost. Um, if your revenue is not growing, it's really hard to grow earnings for five, three to five years, which is really what we are looking for. So we're looking for double-digit revenue growth. Um, and then we're looking for um, margin expansion, which is just another way of saying more dollars of your revenue for to your profit than to be paid out. So you don't really need to spend more to generate that revenue growth. You're actually having your profit growth grow faster than revenue growth. So when you put the two together, we're looking for at least 10 to 15% of durable earnings growth um, over the three to five years. So mathematically speaking, you know, it's a little bit like a like a heat-seeking mission, that's what we're looking for. Um, and, and, you know, across the entire universe of, of growth stocks. Last one, just I'm going to ask you for one more stock uh, in the portfolio. What's one that best exemplifies the type of opportunities you're looking for, maybe the highest conviction stock in the portfolio for the next 12 months? Give us a name. Oh, this is, uh, this is, this is really hard. Um, so um, back to the talk on sneakerheads, um, we like on holdings. Mm -hmm. um, so they make high-end sneakers or the runners. So they have a number one goal of trying to be the best brand and number one brand on runners' bodies. Um, and right now they have roughly about a billion dollar sales. They, the entire company focus on one thing, just to make the best shoes for running. Um, and now they just recently got into um, apparel as well. Um, so this is a company that we think you know, right now Nike and Adidas probably generate north of $4 billion in, in sales in running alone. Um, so we think they actually have a really good chance um, of closing that gap and growing their earnings fairly sustainably by more than 25% over the, past, the next three to five years. Um, and then roughly the stock is trading at, you know, quite 27, 28 times forward earnings. So we think that's a reasonable price to pay for the level of high earnings growth. Chow, we like to wrap these podcasts up by asking three common questions. That's a bit of fun, a bit of a thought experiment. The first sure. one is, um, in your view, what's the one thing that investors are getting wrong about today's markets? Look, investors are never wrong. We don't argue with the tape. But I think it's, it's more on the headlines. I think there was just more um, headlines on, on macro and geopolitics. And, you know, there was a really old saying amongst the, trading, amongst the traders on the trading floor that says, the market climbed a wall of worries. There is always a wall of worries. But I think if you find the right companies, um, you back the right companies over the long term, I still think investors can make money. Chow, I've sort of already asked you this question, but I'll, I'll take another run at it. Can you tell us a story of either a big win or even a big loss in your investing career? And what was the major lesson that you got out of it? Oh, 
too too many um, to to actually to to think about. Okay, so maybe we start with a big loss, and and you know I think this really go back to sort of doing your work um, and, and and really checking the quality of the culture and the management. The big loss was a um, Chinese social network. It, it was really. Um, taking over um, the entire sort of internet traffic in China back in 2011 um, and really on its way to becoming a really powerful Twitter plus Facebook type of combination. And you could just see how that stroke people's imagination. And I was one of the earliest ones to catch on to the trend. And uh, we did all the work tracking the traffic. And, and, and I designed this pretty clever way. I even employed a computer programmer to actually track the common words used as a proxy for how this platform is really taking off in terms of the volume of discussions happening. So we did all the right work. Um, What we didn't factor in was basically the quality of management. Um, So it it went up a lot and actually eventually come crashing down because the management basically manufacture a certain profit guidance um, and and end up missing and just end up credibility um, completely lost to the investors and, and, um, and, and sort of the rest is history. Um, My really big win was um, a stock that um, is still quite an interesting company today, and that's Nintendo. And it just shows the quality of its IP and the sort of the, you know, and the quality of the work it actually does. And so I visited Nintendo many times in their huge compound in Kyoto in Japan. And, you know, for a very long time, Nintendo was basically written off as, as a company that was in the bygone era. Um, no one play on a little um, Nintendo DX anymore, and the games were basically largely considered irrelevant. And we end up just keep buying when, when the stocks kept going down. And of course, um, Pokemon Go happened. Um, and ever since then, it's been really a one way for the world to keep understanding the power of the IP of not just in Nintendo games um, within games itself, but also as a multimedia um, uh, a platform. So, you know, since then we've had the success of, of, of Super Mario. Um, so, so that was a, a really fun win. You know, it's, it's getting a little expensive uh, as we are today, but that was a really big win um, a few years ago. As someone who just uh, spent uh, about $800 on a Nintendo system for my son, <laughs> I know that they're doing reasonably well. So last one, Chow, for today. Uh, if markets close for tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, which company would it be and why? I love that question. Um, if the market closed for five years, which means I will not have a job, um, <laughs> I think not only will I buy the stock, but I will actually try to get a job, and, uh, and that will be NVIDIA. Um, I would love to go work at NVIDIA for five years. And, and the reason is really simple. When we look at computing error change, it's roughly 10 to 15 years when you have a big error change. And the last time we have a massive change was when Apple took over and become the king of compute by putting a computer into all of our hands. Um, and when that happened, it lasts about 15 years and still counting. And I think 2023 is the first year of NVIDIA. Um, so I actually think not just next five, within the next 10 years, it's going to be ruled by NVIDIA's chips, NVIDIA's ecosystem, um, so when we are thinking about investing, another sort of funny anecdote is when it was becoming clear, um, and this is my first hedge fund job in, in 2011, when it was becoming clear that Apple was the new king, we did something really simple. We, we just opened up an iPhone and ended up buying everything that's in the iPhone. 
and end up shorting everything that is not in the iPhone, but in the same industry. And that single idea probably drove the profit for the fund for the next decade. Um, and it just shows you it's a simple idea, but you have to back your conviction when you have a very clear, differentiated view. And that's exactly what we're doing on Monroe today. We think the NVIDIA ecosystem is the winning ecosystem in the next decade. So we are basically, you know, colloquially taking apart an NVIDIA H100 and ask ourselves, what is on that chip and what is not? And, and we are buying probably five to six companies that's closely associated with NVIDIA in the NVIDIA ecosystem. And that's really, you know, we think that can be the big driver for the fund for the next five to 10 years. Chama, thank you so much for sharing your insights with the uh, Rules of Investing podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Good luck with the Munro Global Growth Small and Mid Cap Fund. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to head over to livewiremarkets.com for more great insights from Australia's leading investment professionals.